must be fought. So working people, use your power, the key to liberty. Don't support that rich man's style of luxury. And there ain't no way they can ever keep us down, oh no. Ain't no way they can ever keep us down. We won't be bought, we won't be sold to be treated right, well that's our goal. And there ain't no way they can ever keep us down. Just really struck by black washerwomen in the 1870s in the coalition building that they did with railroad workers, workers on the wharfs in construction, and then you had washerwomen joining them, and the kinds of demands they were making for higher wages and also for dignified work and fighting against white supremacy. Last month, the United Campus Workers of Georgia, the Atlanta North Georgia Labor Council, the Labor and Working Class History Association, and the Southern Labor Studies Association hosted a distinguished panel of labor historians on It Didn't Start with Amazon, a conversation about the history of organized labor in the South. Today's show features excerpts from that conversation which reveals that although unions are notoriously weak in the southern states, workers there actually have a rich history of fighting for their rights and organizing to win power. And on today's Labor History in Two... The year was 1877. That was the day that John D. Rockefeller and his company Standard Oil struck a deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad that would cement his monopoly on the nation's oil refinery. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. They want the power in their hands just to keep down the workers and your welfare ain't on your rich man's Welcome to It Didn't Start at Amazon, a conversation about the history of organized labor in the American South. I'm Cindy Fahamovich. I'm the B. Finnezy Spalding Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Georgia, which is really a mouthful. And I'm also an active member of the United Campus Workers of Georgia, which is one of the sponsors of this event. Dana Kaldemar is an Associate Professor of History at South Georgia State College. She's the author of Union Renegades, Miners, Capitalism, and Organizing in the Gilded Age, and she's a member of the United Campus Workers. Max Krochmal is Associate Professor of History and Founding Chair of the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies at Texas Christian University. He's the author of Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era, and co-editor of Civil Rights in Black and Brown, Histories of Resistance and Struggles in Texas, which is coming out this fall. He's a former union staffer, and now a community organizer with United Fort Worth and a leader of the TCU chapter of the American Association of University Professors, AUP. Jesse Wilkerson is author of To Live Here, You Have to Fight, How Women Led Appalachian Movements for Social Justice. She holds the Robbins Chair and is Associate Professor of History at West Virginia University. She is the granddaughter of Southern Union organizers and was founding member of United Campus Workers of Mississippi. Josh Hollins is a lecturer in U.S. History at University College London, but this year, or 
coming soon will be a Fulbright Scholar based in uh, Elon College in North Carolina. He's writing a book on the history of homophobic workplace discrimination in the U.S. South and Southwest and the movements that arose to challenge it. And he's a member of the University and Colleges Union at University College London. And then last but not least, we have Phil Laporte, who is retired from the College of Law faculty at Georgia State, and his expertise is in labor arbitration, which he has done for organizations as diverse as the City of Atlanta, AT&T, and Major League Baseball. So you guys are, for the most part, historians of, of a modern period, but I'm going to push you out of your comfort zone and ask you how far back you think labor organizing goes in the South, whether you're talking about the traditional traditional definition or the broader definition, how, when you're teaching about the history of labor, where do you start? Go, Jesse. I just taught Tara Hunter's book. So I think that's where I'll start with To Joy My Freedom by the wonderful historian Tara Hunter, who writes about washerwomen in Atlanta. So again, it's relevant to, to Georgia folks. And I just, teaching it again and rereading it, I was just really struck by Black washerwomen in the 1870s and the coalition building that they did with railroad workers, workers on the wharfs in construction, and then you had washerwomen joining them, and the kinds of demands they were making for higher wages and also for dignified work and fighting against white supremacy. And that organizing was happening in Galveston, Texas. It was happening in um, Jackson, Mississippi, and Atlanta, and probably other places that we don't know about because the records didn't survive. Tara Hunter pieced that together with, with what she could gather. And that, that goes back to just after the Civil War. We could probably push it back further. I'll leave it to one of my colleagues to do that. <laughs> I, I can go next and say that, yeah, I, I go earlier when given the opportunity. And yeah, I, I like to think about obviously enslaved people who engaged in all sorts of workplace actions that were also, of course, bound up in their own liberation and challenging the stereotypes and the, the racism that was part of that racialized system of enslavement. A wonderful work by Tavolia Glimpf and others that about how even within the, the plantation household, it was such contested terrain in which enslaved Black women, you know, successfully challenged and renegotiated the terms of their labor with white plantation mistresses. So that's another example. It's a great question, Cindy, because I think we can keep pushing further and further back. And of course, we have Marcus Redeker and others working on merchant seamen in the colonial period. And we could talk about how that had a particularly Southern variant in places like New Orleans or Charleston. But gosh, that sounds like an area we need even more research on. I'm intrigued by the question. I was thinking as, as Jesse was talking about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who talked about the Civil War as a general strike, people freeing themselves um, in the midst of the war. And so that raises a question, if we have this really broad definition of what organizing is and we push it back in time, it raises the question of, what there are sources for, so this might be a question for Lisa, and where are the silences in the archive? What things are we not uncovering simply because the records aren't there because of what maybe past archives thought were important or just simply that some people didn't leave records that made it into an archive and so forth. Could you address that, Lisa? Yeah, definitely. So at the Southern Labor Archives, we don't have anything that really any earlier than 1888, which was when what would become the International Association of Machinists was founded. 
um, here in Atlanta. They are tend to be our earliest records that we have. We also, from the early 1900s, have a fair amount of textile workers from the Carolinas and Tennessee. But the bulk of our collections don't really start until post-World War II. And I don't know if it it might be a combination of things. There was, especially in the South of the Civil War, a lot of destruction and the burning of Atlanta. And I think that definitely attributed to loss. And then also the hostility of the South to organizing and the right to work and all of that. A good example here in the archive is the 1934 textile workers strike. We have an amazing oral history collection from a 1990s documentary but we don't actually have a lot of physical documents related to that strike. And a lot of, especially our earlier documents, to focus on white men, just because historically that has been what has been valued, those stories. And so we're working on trying to diversify and collecting more stories in different communities. But yeah, especially when you're going back to the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, that's going to be a lot of what you find. And I think it's just a combination of those were the people who had the means to preserve their records and work with institutions to get them in. And we're able also to document with paper and had all these resources to document their history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that also plays a part. So Josh, you're actually having to create an archive to do this in a way. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you called on me because all of the things that Lisa was uh, mentioning there were really hitting home with me because, um, you know, I, I set out when I was doing my um, PhD research, I really wanted to write a southern, a history of like Southern queer labor organizing. The archives just aren't there. And so really going around and to, to different archives, so the Atlanta History Center to to Georgia State University as well, and using the the Women and Genders collection as well as the Southern Labour collections to to piece together bits all across the country and then to try to flesh that out with interviews and and oral histories and things. But it really did leave quite a a gap in my research. And this is one of the things why I'm quite excited to, to be working on this book now to try to really flesh that out because as Lisa was saying, if, if you rely so heavily on archives, then you really are reiterating the history of, of the people who had the means, who had the foresight to, to write that down. And that does happen to be, it tends to be middle to upper class folks who have something that they want to leave behind and a record that they want to show. And I think one of the things that is quite exciting about an event like this is where we can really link people up to say, it would be really great for, for historians to talk to, to activists. And of course, many of us are historians and activists and, and labor organizers as well. But I think it's, it's really important. And just to go back to an, an earlier point about w- where do we begin here? Because I was remembering teaching the WPA ex-slave narratives to understand the Great Depression, which is by Stephanie Shaw, and using some of those sources to question, you know, make students think about where do we place the start of, say, Southern history, let alone Southern labor history. And I think that's a good thing for us to think about as well, that actually for my research, which looks at the last 50 years, we can begin to challenge even the narratives that are quite recent as well. I would also want to quickly, again, give myself a shout out of one of the ways we can stop these silences is to work with communities, for me to come to events like this and appeal to you all that 
please consider donating your records to the archive. We really want to preserve your stories and your voices and your diverse viewpoint. And this is one of the ways to do that and to make it accessible to future researchers and to tell your stories. So I was raised in Canada, so I didn't study uh, U.S. history when I was a kid at all. But I would guess that most people who do, who have the just generic U.S. history class that you're required to do at least once or twice, K through 12, if you learned about labor history, it would probably be about the late 19th century, right? The great upheaval and pitch battles between strikers and strike breakers and a growing socialist party, they probably leave that part out. And so forth. So I wonder if you, how the South fits into the stories that we've told about the labor movement. Is it outside of it? Is it a part of it, but different? How do you teach it? How do you think about it? How was it done to you when you were a student? Phil, you want to talk about I think we looked at to Bread and Roses in Lawrence, Massachusetts. We look at the Haymarket in Chicago, but there wasn't much mention of activities in Atlanta. And one of the things that occurs to me is Daniel Blackman's book, Slavery by Another Name. Mm. And boy, what that revealed. He came out and, and spoke to AFSME Local 1644 in a program I organized a long time ago, primarily an African-American local representing workers at the city of Atlanta, the Atlanta School Board and Grady Hospital. And his audience was paying rapt attention. Blackman, a former reporter uh, for the Wall Street Journal, but what he uncovered about the system that went on with African-American men who were doing nothing more than walking down the street, who would be arrested for loitering and then brought to court and they would be charged with court costs and fines. And if they didn't have the money, then they would become an indentured servant and literally rent it out to companies like the Georgia Power Company and the Chattahoochee Brick Company. And that land, uh, the Chattahoochee Brick Company, a railroad wants to buy it now. It's an unmarked grave of many of those workers who were literally worked to death. So there's ongoing struggle there. But no, those type of issues weren't uh, addressed in the regular curriculum of K through 12 in the United States. You might have heard something about John L. Lewis uh, maybe Walter Ruther. Again, talk about old white men. I'm just amazed that you can remember all the uh, acronyms for the labor unions, Phil. I can't even remember the number of my own union local, so it's just very impressive. Jesse, I'm going to come to you. Yeah, so first of all, growing up in East Tennessee, I didn't learn anything about labor, not even from my own family that was involved in labor organizing until well until adulthood. But I did want to mention, this is we're at the anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which just happened. And there's been these uh, amazing celebrations and historic events, public history events across the state of West Virginia to commemorate the Battle of Blair Mountain. And 
the Battle of Blair Mountain was the culmination of the mine wars, which had happened over about a decade and a half when miners were organizing against the mine guard system. So the, the surveillance and policing system, they were organizing around housing issues, low pay, and a lack of any sort of power. And Black, white, and immigrant miners joined forces to battle the coal operators in this battle uh, of Blair Mountain. Federal troops were called in to put down the labor uprising of these workers. And so it's it's also a tragic event. And then I think related to this question is that the Battle of Blair Mountain and that history of the mine wars was suppressed for decades afterward. The political elite controlled by the coal operators in West Virginia didn't allow this history to be taught. And so it's really significant that people organized across the state. There's now a Mine Wars Museum, and there were these series of events, and that will those will keep occurring, I think, for coming weeks. They also wanted to mention Joe Trotter's work, because I think while Battle of Blair Mountain is really significant, and we should remember it and recover that history, sometimes there's a real emphasis on the interracial solidarity of that movement or, you know, that event. And that is significant because it was happening in Jim Crow, West Virginia. It was a Jim Crow state, but it also meant that coalition was really fragile. And so after the defeat of uh, that movement, Black workers continued to organize and they did so in all sorts of ways, through mutual aid society, fraternal orders, through their churches, through the NAACP. And Joe Trotter really tracks that in his book, Coal Class and Color. So you know, I think it's a really layered and, and complex story about interracial solidarity, but also about the Black working class and, and what we were talking about with organized labor and how um, people organize in various ways by joining unions, but also outside of unions. Thanks. Max. You know, maybe Dana first, just to start with the Knights, because I actually want to talk about the Knights too, but I think you can give us the overview. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to mention a little bit about the Knights of Labor. Normally, whenever we think about the Knights, we think about them organizing in northern cities, and we think about things like Haymarket and things like that. But the Knights were actually very active throughout the South in the Gilded Age. And I think that's something that's often overlooked in histories that are taught to, obviously, grade school students and high school students just because they don't get much labor history at all. But I think that often gets overlooked in college history classes, too. These were often very small locals, and they, they were often really autonomous. So they, that means that they didn't really have a um, national place to send all their records to. They just kept everything locally. And I've bounced around from archive to archive for years now, trying to find Knights of Labor records from their minutes, from their meetings in the 1880s. And they're really hard to find. But whenever you find them, they're written on just like random scraps of whatever paper they had handy. And so they don't hold up well. And it's really hard for those things to find their way to archive. Archives. But they do, they, they did exist. We do know that those locals exist. They're actual books that are, have records of all of these, um, these locals. So we know that they exist. We just don't know all that they talked about. We don't know all that they did. And there were other organizations that were organizing at this exact same time. The Knights are the most well-known, but all kinds of miners organizations, really different groups of workers are all trying to organize in the South during this time period. But I suspect they're running into the same problem with just being able to keep their records on paper and things like that. Thanks. Okay, Max, go ahead. 
Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah, so the Knights of Labor had a strong presence in Texas as well. It's a story that none of my students have ever heard. To, to Jesse's point, I think so many of these stories have been repressed, right, because of unions busted and lives shattered and, and of course, the right-wing dominance of the region. But yeah, we had the Knights of Labor even in the mythic parts of Texas, right? So there was there were Knights of Labor cowboy locals that went on strike in 1883. The Great Southwest Strike had an epicenter in Texas and some 5,000 workers that were on strike here. And in fact, I live maybe a mile away from a place from the site of the, the Battle of Buttermilk Switch, which is much less well known, but was a pitched gun battle in which the strikers were able to successfully fend a posse of lawmen and uh, including some of the sort of mythic Texas gunmen, right? Like they were there trying to bring bring scabs into town and, and break the strike and, and the strikers beat them back. And so these stories are here and in some ways they're hidden in, in plain sight. We don't have markers, we don't commemorate them. And then the other one I wanted to mention is a group that we don't often put into labor history at all, but for me, it's so foundational, which are small farmers, tenants, sharecroppers. In the 1880s in Texas, they formed a mass movement that ultimately became the Farmers Alliance and helped to give birth to the People's Party, the greatest third party challenge really to corporate capitalism we've seen in so many ways. And I'm a student of Larry Goodwin's, among others, a great chronicler of Texas and Southern populism. This was a, a mass movement. And, and we don't consider farmers workers because of various industrial-centered definitions that have come from the state primarily, but also because of how they organized. And the Farmers Alliance tried to form connections with the Knights of Labor with varying degrees of success. But they, they, as Jesse invoked, they were able to cross racial lines in somewhat tentative and halting ways, but sometimes successfully. And they represented a real challenge to the, the imposition of the Southern order of the late 19th and early 20th century, the creation of Jim Crow. And so this was a mass movement of ordinary people. And again, it started just down the road from where I live too, maybe 30 miles in, in Cleburne, Texas. These are the kinds of stories that I think it's so important to teach and to share. And that they upset in some ways, like, the, the normal chronologies of U.S. history that, for example, that Reconstruction was still contested for a generation after the federal troops pulled out. And that's when you are viewing it from the angle of working class struggles, it forces you to maybe step back and see things that, that are thought to have been settled, but in fact were not. And that's a liberatory conclusion, right? Because it means that ordinary people in even these desperate times that we're in now can come together and organize and, and really challenge the status quo in, in ways that have durable legacies as well. So Nell Levin in the chat asked about IWW activity, which reminded me of Mac Marquis' work, the dissertation student of mine who's at, at William & Mary in Virginia, who's writing about the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, which was had 20,000 members around the turn of the 20th century. And they affiliate or they want to affiliate with the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, which is the most sort of radical game going, right, in uh, the country at the time. And the IWW is an interracial union and said, you have to set aside white supremacy if you're going to do it. And they don't necessarily do that personally, but they do it officially. And the Brotherhood of Timber Workers becomes an interracial union. And you've all been talking about interracial movements. So I want to get at that, this issue, how much does white supremacy divide workers and impede union organization in the South? Does it make the South exceptional? Or has that been a misunderstanding that since we know that there was white supremacy in lots of places in the US, is, are we wrong to think of this as especially Southern story? 
Dana, how about you? I see you thinking there. I was just about to volunteer. So. <laughs> it's great. I, I want to go in the middle there a little bit. Obviously the South has is known for Jim Crow issues and everything. And so I do think that there is a, a special kind of struggle that you see in the South, but at the same time, you see the, the struggles that unions face with interracial activity all throughout the United States. I focus on the Gilded Age and the mining unions that I focus on pretty much overwhelmingly said that they were going to be interracial. They didn't want to have anybody cast out from the union because it would really work against their interests. But that was on paper. And so it always looks so much nicer on paper. But whenever it comes to actually implementing it, that becomes one of the really big roadblocks. I've seen records in Northern Illinois where white miners just completely threw a fit at the idea of their local being run by a black man, even though he had been working in the industry for a really long time. He was very skilled. He was very respected. But because he was black, he could not have this place of authority. And that's supposed to be in Northern Illinois. And of course, these conversations are being held elsewhere in the South. There was a black mine organizer who was moving through West Virginia in the 1890s, and he was forced to to be separated from the white union workers he was traveling with. And there were nights whenever he was scared to death. He thought he wasn't going to live. But but I think whenever you look at these stories, it's not just something that's a Southern story. You definitely see these things throughout the United States. And this is something that Black workers recognized and they held their unions accountable for it. So it does become a roadblock for union organizing. And it becomes, at least in my work, something that would cause workers to say, wait, I don't know if I really want to pay dues to you because you're actually doing stuff that's hurting me right now. You're upholding Jim Crow. You're not doing anything about this. You're playing lip service, but that's it. And, and so I think that is something that you see on a national level, but it's a lot more loud, possibly, in the U.S. South. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1877. That was the day that John D. Rockefeller and his company Standard Oil struck a deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad that would cement his monopoly on the nation's oil refineries. In the early 1870s, Rockefeller was building his oil empire out from its center in Cleveland, Ohio. In October of 1877, the nation went through a great upheaval, a popular uprising of a quarter of a million railroad workers and their allies. The uprising had only ended after a series of bloody skirmishes in rail centers across the country that saw 100 workers killed. The Pennsylvania Railroad had lost $3 million in destroyed property. Recognizing the railroad was in trouble, Rockefeller decided to capitalize on the opportunity. The railroad had just entered into a partnership with one of Rockefeller's competitors, the Empire Transport Company, earlier that year. The strike had weakened both partners. Rockefeller was able to purchase empire's assets far below their actual value. For example, he purchased an empire oil refinery in Pennsylvania for a half a million dollars. Within four years, that refinery had earned Rockefeller three times that amount. But the most important part of the deal was that Rockefeller could ship his oil on the Pennsylvania Railroad so cheaply that he could drive out his remaining competition. Standard Oil was shipped on rail for $0.08 a barrel. Other companies had to pay more than $1.44. 
By the 1890s, Rockefeller's refineries handled 90% of the nation's oil. His ruthless efforts to drive out competition made Rockefeller increasingly unpopular with the public and the target of anti-monopoly reformers. In addition, Rockefeller and his company became increasingly notorious for their heavy-handed anti-labor practices, most infamously for the Ludlow Massacre of 1914. There's a chimney so tall that says Aragon Mill. But there's no smoke. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHC on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our thanks to United Campus Workers of Georgia and the Atlanta North Georgia Labor Council for permission to use excerpts from the panel. It didn't start with Amazon, a conversation about the history of organized labor in the South. And special thanks to Eric Kostater, and Ryan Richardson for getting us the panel audio file. Today's music was They'll Never Keep Us Down and Aragon Mill, both by Hazel Dickens. As John Pietaro said, Dickens didn't just sing the anthems of labor, she lived them in her place on many a picket line, staring down gunfire and goon squads embedded her into the cause. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Van Lake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Yes, the only sound I hear is the cry of the wind as it blows through the town. Weave and spin, weave and spin. Yes, the cry of the wind as it blows through the town.